0: Smyrna called Polycarp. No, that does not mean many fish. That's actually his name. Uh, It's Polycarp. Uh, He was a second generation Christian. He he had John and Polycarp was John's disciple. So you're talking second generation Christian. And during an outbreak of persecution, for in those days in the Roman Empire it was common to be persecuted, uh, he knew that he was about to be arrested. And ignoring the pleas of his friends to flee the particular house he was staying in, he actually ordered a meal for the Roman persecutors, to, to, to serve for them. And he requested, when the Roman authorities ar- arrived to arrest him, he requested an hour per- to pray, which they gave him, and then eventually he was arrested under that persecution of the Romans. Uh, in his trial, he was asked to blaspheme Jesus and to curse God. And Polycarp replied to the Roman authorities, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme? Being my king who saved me. Now we don't really know his age at this time, but we know he was at least eighty-six years old. My guess is he's probably almost in his nineties, because he's talking about how many years that he has served Jesus. And I think that's an amazing testimony that he in his later years, even though that death was around the corner, he was still courageous in the face of persecution. So today when we're reading about Paul here, we're gonna read about how he was courageous in the face of his Future imprisonment and his arrest and his persecution as well. So we're going to pick up here in verse one 21:1. Uh, and, and when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to coast, and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Petura. And having found the ship crossed to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in the sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyr. For there was a ship. for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Potomac, And we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manson the, of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So we pick up this passage, um, and we're going to read a second section of this, but we're going to look at this first section here. We pick up this passage after Paul is done talking to the Ephesian elders. Uh, Pastor Sean was talking about that for the last two weeks, about him talking to them. We read about his voyage back to Jerusalem. You're hearing about a bunch of naval ship destinations, which, by the way, Luke is one of the most accurate historians you will ever read in ancient times, and he was very accurate with the route that, he, that they took home. Um, just kind of a bit of a side comment here. So we read about his journey back to Jerusalem. Paul wanted to get back to Jerusalem in time for the Pentecost. We are told that he wanted to get there for that period. Now, there's one difficulty I think we've got to deal with in this passage, is the question of, was Paul disobedient to the Holy Spirit? Because we read that he's encountering these different individuals, and they're telling him, hey, when you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested, you're going to be persecuted, and they're urging him not to go. So was Paul disobedient. Well, I don't think he was. First, we read in uh, Acts 20, 19, 21, that after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit... To pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So we read that he resolved in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. So we have this idea that it was the Spirit's will for Paul to journey to Jerusalem, where he would eventually be arrested. Second, the believers Paul encountered were simply told what would happen to Paul, not what Paul should do. For instance, in in verse 11 there, we read uh, Agabus giving the prophecy that this is how the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. There's no prescription for what Paul is to do. This is simply what's going to happen to Paul. Now, I think that these believers, they reach a very human conclusion that since Paul was being persecuted, that he should not go. But also, I think it's important that Luke has a very high view of the Holy Spirit. I don't think that he would have the Holy Spirit say one thing and then do another thing and change his mind. Uh, remember that in the words of Numbers 23:19, that God is not man, that he should lie, or a son of man, that he should change his mind. Has he not said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? And I think fourth, the tone, and this is kind of a harder argument, but the way that Luke presents Paul is not one of disobedience. Paul is not reprimanded, he is not told he's being disobedient. We have this idea that Paul is being obedient and going to Jerusalem. So what then are we to think about Paul and his determination to go to Jerusalem? Well, I think it's our normal response to suffering. Look, you know, if we know one of our friends is going to suffer, that we want to spare that person that fate. It's, it's because we are concerned about the lives of the people that we love. Now, I remember hearing a story relayed uh, once by David Platt. I'm not sure where I heard this story from him, but he was talking about a group of missionaries in Southeast Asia that were living in an increasingly hostile area. Now, they were, the head missionaries back home were kind of like, okay, do we pull them out now? Do we pull them out later? Do we let them stay? What, what is it that we do? And that's one of the hardest decisions that some of the people have to make is when it's time to stay and to go when areas are becoming increasingly hostile. Well, so they're in conversation with these frontline missionaries, the home missionaries are, and they're talking. It's like, okay, you know, it's getting really hostile. I think it might be time for you guys to come home. And these missionaries on the front line, they're like, no, let us stay, for God has called us to be with this people. We don't want to go back home. We want to stay. And so the the head missionaries, they let these front line missionaries stay, and eventually they were persecuted and martyred for their faith. Now, our human reason would tell us that that was a needless sacrifice. I mean, we knew that that was going to happen. However, I think God often has a different agenda in times of persecution, in in times of hostility for our faith. Sometimes it is within his will that we should suffer those things and that we should not shy away from it. Now we see this modeled in the life of Paul. Paul here was resolute for he understood that God had called him to go to Jerusalem and he was obedient to that calling. The question then that is left to me is, you know, why was Paul courageous? Where did that courage come from? Uh, For Paul, he, his courage, he came from knowing who he was to really fear and who has our ultimate allegiance. Uh, Paul would re- later like, write this in Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That's a good British word. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. As Paul wrote here, there's nothing that he counted of any value to himself beyond the treasure of knowing Christ. as a matter of fact in Philippians 1, he says that, you know, really my life doesn't even really matter to me as a whole. What what would give Paul that courage in the face of that upcoming trouble? Well, Paul comes Paul's courage comes from his security in Christ. Paul's aware that his future is secure in Jesus. If he should die, he goes to heaven, and if he lives, he lives to further the gospel. This is what leads him to proclaim in Philippians 1:21 to live is Christ to die is gain. You see, Paul was able to overcome his fears because of the knowledge that since he, who he knew he was in Christ, that he had no need to fear death. For if he dies, he goes to heaven. And did you know that's the worst thing someone can do to you is they can kill you? But really, they're doing you a favor because when they kill you, they're sending you to heaven. So it's really a favor. So we have no need as Christians to fear death. For Paul then, he did not fear what the Jews were going to do to him in Jerusalem, for he knew he was secure in Christ. Jesus says this in Matthew ten twenty eight. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is that mankind is not really worthy of our fear. Uh, human beings aren't worthy of it, but God is. Perhaps it is true that also what we fear in a way we also worship. And I think that the courageous Christian is the one who fears God alone. The fear of man often will lead us to disobedience, and the fear of God will lead us to obedience. The believers then must have been fearful for Paul's fate at the hands of sinful men, which is why they were urging him, hey, don't go back to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested. Well, let, me ask, let me back up though and ask the question, what is courage? How would you define courage? Well, courage is doing the right thing in the face of pain or fear. It's not the absence of fear. It's doing the right thing when things are difficult. Courage does not back down, thi- back down but it insists on doing the right thing despite the painful consequences. Uh, as a matter of fact, this is one of the classical virtues. A lot of you guys have probably heard about the seven deadly sins, but kind of on the other flip hand side of that, there's also these seven classical virtues. Well, the Greeks had four of them. They had prudence, which was wisdom, temperance, another word for self-control, justice, and courage. And the Christians later on added another three being hope, faith, and love. And, you know, just as a side note, I sometimes, when I was a youth and as a young adult, I was always being told, you know, what not to do and never what to do. And so if you're looking for something to do, Christians, those are seven good things to be striving for. And let me just kind of run over those real fast. You got prudence, temperance, justice, courage, hope faith, and love. And those are great virtues to be living by. And we're just looking at one of those virtues today, the aspect of courage. So like Paul, we, as Christians, we must live to do the right thing even when it hurts. It may not be popular, but we need men and women of faith who are willing to stand up and insist on doing the right thing despite the consequences. You know, I, I fear that we live in a society that, that C.S. Lewis once described as having a society and people of men without chest. And what he meant by that is they had no moral center, no moral fortitude to do the right thing. We can be courageous not because of any inner strength on our part, but because of Christ and who he is and what he has done. We can be, and we are fearful and timid people. Other human beings, they do intimidate intimidate us. However, when we realize our security and our strength that we have in Christ, we can stand courageously. Uh, Considering the following passage in Joshua uh, chapter one, verses one through nine. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses's assistant, "Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, arise, go go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised Moses." Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. There's a part of me that at the end of that pep talk, I just want to go, woo, yeah, let's go. Um, Because that's quite the pep talk that Joshua got from God. And And if you go back and you trace, he tells Joshua to be strong and courageous three times. Now, my guess is he didn't have to tell, you know, he doesn't have to say that for his own benefit. That's for Joshua's benefit. So whenever God repeats or says something, you know, it's not because he needs to repeat it, but because we forget. And my guess is Joshua is probably feeling the opposite of that. V- very, you know, timid, fearful, and not very courageous. So that's why God kept commanding him to do that. So Josh, Joshua's courage was not to come on his own, but rather upon a radical reliance upon the presence of God. God told him that he, as he was with Moses, he was going to be with him, and that He was not going to leave him or forsake him. So that's where Joshua's courage came from, is knowing that God was going step by step with him. Jesus even ends his great commission with, Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. May God raise up men and women who can echo with the psalmist in Psalm 56. This I know that God is for me, in God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Well, When I thought about this, man can actually do quite a bit to us on earth. They can persecute us, they can crush us, they can destroy us, they can kill us. However, I don't really think that's what the psalmist is trying to point out. But rather, in the grand eternal scheme, scheme of things, man can do only a very, very small amount to us. And I think that that is what gives us that courage, is realizing, look, this this life is really short. We have but a brief moment of opportunity, so we we do not have the time to sit back and let life happen. We need to stand courageously. Don't back down and face, you know, when that difficulty or temptation or that trial comes. But Rather, stand firm, knowing that the presence of God is with you. But not only do we see Paul modeling courage here in this passage, but we also see him... Modeling the importance of community and humility. Uh, We're going to go ahead and we're going to, if you turn your Bibles, we're going to go back to Acts 21. We're going to read verses 17 through 26. When he had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So we see that Paul here is uh, back in Jerusalem and he's talking and communicating to the, to the elders here. He first goes to the elders of the church of Jerusalem and kind of reports on his missionary activities. What I find re- remarkable is after Paul recounts his successes in ministry one by one that God has done through the Gentiles, their response was to glorify God in verse 20 there. I think it's, uh, they are not, interesting that they are not jealous or envious or desiring of the success that Paul has, but that they, when they see the Christ message further, the gospel going forward, that they glorify God. And I think that that we Christians we struggle with this attitude of competitive of competitiveness that when we see success in somebody else we have a hard time glorifying God and what they are doing in someone else. Now God can now whenever we see success we should be willing to glorify God no matter who that is. So God is not just to remind you God is not confined to working only here in Emmanuel Baptist Church. He can work in multiple churches, multiple locations, in multiple ministries. But and when we see that, it's not an attitude of, well, you know, God, well, God can only work here, so we can't glorify God with him. Yes, we have our differences, and they are important differences that we have with some of these different ministries and churches that are out there. But when we see an evangelical church that is proclaiming the gospel boldly, and they are experiencing success, we need to be able to also rejoice and to glorify God with them. And I think it's also kind of a true test of, Any Christian minister is how they react to a successful ministry. Does that person give glory to God or to themselves? Now, I always have to check my heart, especially when I think things are going well. You know, when things are going well, I have a tendency, you know, to take my arm and pat myself on the back and say, you know, hey, great job, you did a a nice job there, things are going well. Instead of focusing on myself and, and giving myself the credit, I need to glorify God and defer to Him for His glory. Because I need to remember that really I am nothing. I mean, God. the only good things that I do is because it's God working in me. I, I, I cannot do that on my own strength or on my own power. If any good thing should happen because of me, it's because of God working through me. And so whenever I see a success, I need to glorify God. So after the ch- elders in the church, they, in Jerusalem, they rejoice with Paul for his successful ministry and his missionary journey, they address an area of concern. Uh, they tell him that many Jews are kind of misunderstanding his, mi- his mission to the Gentiles. And the Jews are having a hard time under- seeing him as a part of their fellowship. So, so here's the issue. This is what's what's going on, is that they're receiving reports in Jerusalem that Paul is teaching Jews who live in Gentile areas that they can abandon the practices of, of Moses and of the law, particular here as of circumcision. And what they're saying here is like Paul We're hearing reports, we know this isn't true, but we're hearing reports that you are teaching Jews in Gentile areas to stop being a Jew. And that's not really what Paul taught at all. He never taught that Jews were to abandon the law entirely. He was clear that the law did not save him. Now James proposed a solution for Paul to show that he was not teaching the Jews to abandon the law entirely. But let me first kind of back up and say this is what's not at stake. Uh, the gospel, justification by faith alone and Christ alone, is not a central issue here. It has to do with the cultural practices of Judaism. Paul was not against observing the law at all. He even wrote this in First Corinthians 9.20. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though myself, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Paul later says that I became all things to all people, that I might win some. For Paul did not want any cultural barriers to come between people coming to Christ. In other words, Paul did not want to give any unnecessary offense from the gospel. For similar reasons, this is why missionaries will often adopt the dress and culture of, of these different areas that they're going into. And one of the first things that they do is they adopt their language. It's not that they are compromising their message, but they're realizing that these are non-essentials to the gospel. They want to remove as many stumbling blocks as they can for people coming to the gospel and believing and trusting in Christ. And James understands and supports Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, which is why he refers to an earlier letter that we talked about well, oh, several months ago in Acts 15. The problem is that some Jewish Christians in particular are having a hard time seeing Paul as a part of their fellowship in the church of Jerusalem. So James encourages Paul to go through the purification rites and to pay for several men. These several men were likely under a Nazarite vow. So as, and this is to help Paul kind of clarify the issue that he is not against Jews keeping the law and that, law, and that Paul is also a law-abiding Jew. Now, Paul, desiring not to give any offense, he complies with James' request and undergoes the purification rites. Paul would have been perceived as unclean because he's been dealing with Gentiles, and Jews thought Gentiles were unclean. So Paul, with all his dealing with the Gentiles, he was perceived as being richly unclean. Now, he was not unclean, for he know that he was clean with Christ, but he did this just so that the Jews would not have any stumbling block. He follows a, a practice of humility which is basically for him, in this case, is a uh, practice of avoiding offending anybody to the best of his ability. Now, there are some things that I think are okay to be offensive on. There are those central core issues that we need to hold tightly to. And we talk about this a lot at the church, but I think it's important to go over again. We have those central things that we call dogma issues. These are things like the divinity of Christ, or the sal- that salvation is through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. We hold tightly to those things, and we we are not afraid of controversy for those. Now there's also important areas which we call doctrine, but they're non-essentials to salvation. Things such as different views on predestination, or the end times, or other such things like that. Um, There are important issues, and it's important to have a view on these different things, but they are non-essentials to the gospel. There's also a third tier of things, which we call preferences. Preferences could be the color of the carpet, uh, the volume of the music, the dress style. You know, it's, I, I prefer casual, I prefer formal. I mean, you have all these different preferences. And Paul submits to James' judgment because he understood this to be a non-essential, this idea of purification in him and the Jews. He did not want to cause any unnecessary division in the church of Jerusalem. Now, Paul was never one to shy away from controversy. If we have seen anything, you know, Pastor Sean has talked about how Paul goes into a city and there's, you know, usually a riot because he's proclaiming the gospel boldly. So Paul was not one to shy away from controversy. But we also see in Paul a desire for unity in the church because Paul was able to distinguish between what was essential and what were non-essentials. And my hope is that we as a church can do the same. May we hold tightly to the things that are essential and be charitable with the non-essentials. Uh, some people describe that as there are things that we hold with a closed fist. Those are those core issues, and there's things that we hold with an open hand. Maybe we'd be able to distinguish and have the wisdom to know the difference between the two. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians ten thirty-one 31-33. So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Now, in context, what Paul is describing just prior to this is Christian liberty, that there are many things that Christians are able, that are free to do and enjoy. However, Paul's principle is that people's inclinations and their convictions are more important than us practicing our individual liberty. We must be concerned for the unity of the church rather than practicing our liberty in a non-essential Now, let me give you an example. Uh, I, as one of your pastors and leaders in the church, I do not drink alcoholic beverages at all. I don't have any desire to drink them. However, I can find no explicit command in Scripture that I must abstain from alcohol entirely. There are plenty of warnings against drunkenness, that Christians are not to get drunk, um, and that is a sin, to be sure. That is very clear from Scripture. Um, And we also read elsewhere that Paul even commands Timothy to drink some wine to kind of help his stomach out because he was having some health difficulties. However, I abstain from alcohol for a number of reasons, but one of those has to deal with the culture that we live in. For I think if I were to partake of that, it would cause an unnecessary stumbling block for both Christians and non-Christians alike. Uh, Consuming alcohol in American culture has very negative connotations. And for me to drink, it would place an unnecessary stumbling block in front of a Christian or a non-Christian. However, if we lived in Europe, or if I lived in Europe, it wouldn't really be a big deal because it's a very commonly accepted practice. It's an accepted part of their culture. Now, I, I don't, now don't get me wrong, I'm not, defending pe- I'm not necessarily defending people who, who drink, but I, I, I may think it's unwise, but I don't think it's necessarily sinful either. So that's Paul's principle of giving no unnecessary offense. So I think if Paul were to live in America, or to live in our culture here, he would not drink because he would not want to cause an unnecessary offense. One reason we are told not to give an offense is because we are told that the gospel is an offense. 1 Corinthians one through 23-24 But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. As Paul writes, the gospel is an offense to our human sensitivities. People are offended when we are confronted over our sins. No one likes to be told, you're bad, or you're a sinner. But rather that they're good and they actually have their life together. Uh, the early part of the gospel, though, is that we have rebelled against our creator. We have rebelled against our God. We have committed, in the words of R.C. Sproul, cosmic treason against our king of kings. The gospel reminds us that we cannot pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. There's nothing we can do, but it must be entirely dependent upon Christ and what he has done in our place. It tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and that we can be made alive in Christ. So to the Jew. Or the religious person, it's an offense because this person likes to think that they can work hard, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, and they can get there on their own merit. You know, if you have, they, they see it like as a scale, where if you have enough good deeds and they outweigh the bad deeds, then you're going to go to heaven. And, that's, and the gospel's an offense there because the gospel says you've got to chuck that scale out entirely because, there's not, because you're, even the very best thing you do really is a bad thing. And to the Greek, the gospel is an offense since they think it's foolishness that God would give sinners a gift that they don't deserve. It goes against their sensibilities. They cannot conceive of a loving God who sent his son, who who was born, who lived, and died, and rose again. It's folly to them. It's foolishness. However, from what Paul is saying here, for those who understand their need for Christ's substitutionary death for their sins it's the power and wisdom of God. Now, regardless of what people may find offensive about the gospel message, we as Christians, we are not called to be offensive ourselves. Now, there's a kind and compassionate way to proclaim an offensive message. For instance, when you're talking about the gospel, you don't, the first thing you don't tell somebody is, you're going to hell. I mean, that's not a good way to start a conversation. That's how we can be offensive sometimes in how we present the gospel. So we as Christians, yes, we know the gospel. It can be offensive, and we're to be truthful with the gospel, but we are called not to be offensive to the best of our ability. So let us, as Christians, let us seek to remove from ourselves, from the equations, and let the gospel speak for itself. We do not, make the me- we do not need to make the message any more offensive than it is. Let us remove from ourselves any unnecessary offense. However, if it is true that outside the church that we need to remove any unnecessary offense, it's also true in the church. For instance, when I know that I'm going to be on stage or in the pulpit, I dress more formally than I normally do. I do not do this because I feel any personal conviction one way or the other, but I think it's a good representation of who we are as a church in the way in which I dress when I'm up here because I know when I have to fill the pulpit or preach, um, it's because I do not want what I wear to be a distraction. I want people to hear about God's Word and upon Jesus, and I don't want people to be worried about what it is that I'm wearing. And so I try to to dress in such a way to not draw attention to myself. But before I moved here to Colorado, I lived in California. Now, if you want to talk about lax dress, go to California. I mean, you'll have pastors in flip-flops, skinny jeans, and a graphic t-shirt. I mean, that would be a normal dress for a pastor in California. However, that's not the culture of Colorado. And we adopt and adapt to the cultures that we are a part of. Now, I'm not saying whether or not pastors should dress formally or informally. That's not really the discussion I want to talk about. But it's more of like, we, I don't want to give people unnecessary offense. And that would be an example of, of myself trying to practice that in the church. Uh, we also experienced this as a youth group. When we went to Fort Collins... Uh, a couple weeks ago, one of the dress code requirements it was to wear sleeve shirts because different churches, different youth groups, they have different opinions about what is appropriate. And we did not want to give any group or any person uh, any unnecessary offense. Or here, let's say that we are, I don't know, overseas and with a church that has a cultural aversion to pork. So during a fellowship meal, we're not going to go serve ham. I mean, that's just not a way to build Christian unity. Even though we are free to serve ham and to eat ham and to enjoy ham, if we are dealing with people from a culture who are not inclined to, towards that, I think as, as a response, not desiring to give them offense, we would back off and serve them something that they could eat and would not be offended by. Now, Paul lived this humility in this book of Acts here, uh, going through the purification rites, even though he wasn't really required to do this because he wanted to put other people's sensitivities above his own. Now, I could list and go through a bunch of different examples about how we could model this humility, but to the best of our ability, I think we need to remember to place other interests, other sensitivity above our own for the sake of Christian unity. Look, your, your liberty does not come at the expense of community. And that's a good reminder for me that, you know, because we live in America, and it's all about my rights. You know, we, we, we want to do what we want to do, and we have a hard time letting other people kind of dictate our choices. But that's part of living in community, is deferring to somebody else. Now, I think that there are several ways that we can respond. I, I went through verses 1 through 26. The first thing is that we should remember uh, we are to be bold for the cause of Christ. Knowing of our security in Christ and our reward in heaven, that there's nothing man can do to you and I, let us be bold, let us be courageous for the cause of Christ. Second, we should seek to give God glory for any success and not not ourselves. And this, I think, will be a really good gut check and a check on our pride is always deferring things to God. And third, I think we should model Christian humility and avoid giving people any unnecessary offense. But perhaps you have these other three things that I just went over. They don't really make any sense if you don't first have a relationship with Christ. If you don't, if you don't have that, these other three things aren't going to make any sense to you. For you, the message of the gospel may still be offensive because it's, it tells us that we are sinners and we can only be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. So for you, this, is a, this may be a moment of repentance for you to turn to Christ and to trust Him for salvation. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to, to pray and I'm going to give you guys an opportunity to have a few moments of, of quiet to pray however you feel, feel led to pray and then I will, I will close this. So let's bow our heads and, and pray. ...and courageous for the gospel, not relying on our own strength or the strength of our character, but rather upon... Your presence and drawing near to you. Uh, may, we, may we stand up for what is right even when it hurts, to do the right thing despite the consequences. Lord, I pray that you would raise up men and women in our church and around the world that would live in such a way. May we never back down from proclaiming the gospel message. Lord, I pray as well that we would give you glory for all things, all things good. God, I also pray that we would model Christian humility. Defer to the deferring to the needs and the sensitivities of others, not insisting on our individual rights, but desiring to draw us together in unity as a body. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would have a humble heart about us, that we would have the humility of Christ and model it in a radical way. Lord, I, I thank you for this today and for the the week that we had with the church at Fort Collins. Lord, I thank you for seeing them modeling humility and love for our community. And Lord, I pray that we would continue to learn from their example and that we would also be desiring to do the same in our community. In your name we pray. Amen.